everyone, it's Simi Shaw, and welcome to Trailblazers. Through this series, we bring you trailblazing by South Asians and for South Asians. We're the torchbearers, sharing the stories of the leaders and innovators lighting the way across the South Asian diaspora. Today, I'm excited to welcome Sopan Deb. Sopan Deb is a South Asian American journalist who currently covers basketball and culture for the New York Times. Before joining the Times, he covered Donald Trump's presidential campaign for CBS News. His work has appeared on the Boston Globe, Al Jazeera, NBC News, and other prominent news outlets. He also moonlights as a New York City-based comedian. And most recently, he's the author of a book, a memoir titled Mistranslations, Meeting the Immigrant Parents Who Raised Me. Sopan, you are a South Asian trailblazer to a T, and I am so excited to speak with you today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Obviously, 2020 has been a big year for everyone, but for you, you've had this incredible milestone. You just released your first book, and I'm simplifying here, but it's about growing up brown in America and being the child of immigrants. What inspired the book? Why now? Yeah. Um, thank you for having me. I mean, it has been a big year, you know, in that I got to release the book, but in, in the grand scheme of things, it's actually, you know, if you look at the world, uh, it hasn't been the best year. But the book is about tracks a year of my life as I try to reconnect with my estranged parents. And essentially what pushed me to write the book was, you know, at the beginning of writing the book, I hadn't seen my dad in 11 years and my mom in five. And essentially um, I wanted to... I was, I was turning 30 and I, was, I had reached an age where I was, I was thinking to myself, um, you know, my parents aren't going to be around for that much longer. And at the time, actually, I wasn't even 100% sure my mom in particular was still around at all. So, uh, you know, it was at a point where it was unacceptable to me to have virtually no relationship with either parent. So I decided to reach out to both of them. And I thought there's an interesting story to tell here. So I decided to document the process and do it in a book. And it was a really uh, exhausting and draining process, but ultimately I think there was a lot of positives that came out of it, and, and I'm glad I got to share that with the world. Well, we're certainly very glad you did decide to share this story. You actually took a very journalistic approach to having this conversation and tackling the black box that is your family and growing up brown in America. What was it like applying those journalistic skills to something so personal? You know, what was interesting is I actually approached the whole process like a journalist on purpose because I, th I think in a lot of these narratives that we see about immigrant children, or children of immigrants, I should say, there are a lot of, you know, aggrievement that you see. You know, my parents were too restrictive or my parents were this and that. I felt like if I approached it as a journalist, I could be detached from it. I could be, and this way I could look in the mirror and see what I brought to our dynamic in the family. My parents were arranged to get married. They had a really toxic arranged marriage. They didn't end up getting divorced for 30 years because, as you know, divorce is really frowned upon in South Asian society. So approaching these conversations as someone who is kind of quote unquote unbiased as opposed to, you know, their son, you know, allowed me to reflect and allowed me to be more empathetic and allowed me to kind of hear them in a way that I might not have if I went in there guns blazing. Here are the problems I have with you, mom and dad, if that makes sense. That makes a ton of sense. And is that what lended itself to you approaching it through this 
question and answer format? Initially, we were thinking about doing it as a documentary. And I thought, because, you know, I'd worked in television for most of my 20, you know, uh, but then I was, you know, sticking cameras in the faces of these parents who, who, who haven't seen me in a while, that might be a little bit intrusive. So I thought about doing it as a book. And listen, at the beginning of the book, not only did I not know where my parents were living, I mean, I didn't know basic facts about them. I didn't know their birthdays, how old they were, you know, how they came to this country, how they met, you know, basically I knew next to nothing about them. And I felt like if I was going to reconnect with them, I had to start from the beginning. It's less of a reconnection than kind of initiating a relationship. And I thought that, well, asking them the questions that I have for them would be the best way to do that. And after going through this whole process, how did it ultimately affect your relationship with them? Well, I mean, they're humans to me in a way they weren't before. You know, before this, they were kind of floating heads to me. They were these footprints in my life rather than visible presences. And now they're fully fledged, fully formed humans to me in a way they weren't before. Now, with that being said, are we like close, you know, mom and dad in the way that a lot of my friends are? No, I mean, this isn't a Hallmark movie. You know, things don't happen overnight. You know, it's, 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 a, long, it's, a, it's a long process. So it's evolving. Uh, it'll change every year. But we're both in that process. And that's what's important. Absolutely. And I imagine that just having those personal conversations was a great way to ignite that connection in the first place. Yeah. Something I've always said is if you want to build a bridge with somebody, you have to first want to build that bridge. And the other person has to want to build that bridge as well. It's a two-way street. And I'm I'm lucky in this respect that my parents were on board with the process. Now, it wasn't easy. You know, we had a lot of difficult conversations and it wasn't easy for them to read the book. But ultimately, I think they understood what, what I was trying to do. And, and I'm very grateful for that. Yeah. And speaking to those tougher conversations, I mean, you deal with a lot in the book that many children of immigrant parents are scared to talk about. There's obviously this lighter aspect to your book, but you also tackle some pretty serious trauma. What were some of the harder questions to ask and conversations to have when you were going through this process? Speaking to my mother about depression was difficult because I, I think, as, as you probably know, my mother and father's generation, they didn't understand therapy. They didn't understand mental health issues. They didn't understand, you know, kind of private personal development in a way. They didn't have the language for that. So writing about that, speaking to them about that was very difficult. With my father in particular, what was difficult was uh, my freshman year of college, he left to go back to India without telling anybody. He just left and he never came back. And that's partially why I haven't seen him uh, or I had not seen him since I was 18. And asking him why he left and finding out why he left, that was a very difficult conversation. So I think that I mean, the whole thing was difficult, and there were parts that were more difficult than others, but there were also parts that were lighter. You know, I, I did not want people reading this book and being sad at the end of it, because that's not who I am. I like cracking jokes, and, and I like lightening the mood and breaking tension, and, and I try to do that in the book as much as I can. I think that's great, and it totally makes sense that you wanted people not to take this too seriously, being a reflection of who you are, someone who you know, likes to break the tension, crack jokes. And I imagine some of that stems from your experience as a comedian, which is very cool. 
what are you up to with respect to that? And how has your experience in that world flavored your book? So the comedy part about it is I started doing stand-up soon after graduating college. Actually, I, I first started with improv. And the reason I started doing improv was because my, my, my college girlfriend broke up with me and I was really sad. And I was like, well, what do, what do, sad, what do sad people do? Oh, I guess, I guess I'll become a comedian. And, <laughs> improv, and then I went from there doing stand-up. And I found both very um, cathartic and also therapeutic. But when I started doing stand-up, I realized I, I, was, not, I was not good at it. I was, you know, I can get some laughs and I would tell all these stereotypical jokes about being Indian and, and, and they weren't, they were fine, but they weren't the best jokes. And I wasn't proud of them. And I realized I was kind of playing the part of a brown guy. And part of that was, you know, I think I had this kind of deep kind of longing for a relationship with my parents. And, and so that's part of what this journey was. was like, why are you doing all this brown material on stage? That's fake. Why don't you go figure out what, who you really are? To answer your second part of your question, what I'm up to now, I do a lot less stand-up now, uh, very very rarely, if anything. Um, before the pandemic hit, I was prepping for the book launch, but on top of that, I was had joined a sketch team. I was a sketch writer. And then, of course, the pandemic hit, and then the theater shut down and whatnot. So I'm much more interested in comedy writing now. Um, I'm way less interested in performing, but I just love writing. It's what I do. I really love writing the book. I'm working on another book, and I feel much more confident in that than I do my on-stage persona. Well, that's very exciting to hear. And it's really interesting to hear about how your time in comedy also influenced your writing. And I'm sure another major influence in that passion of yours is the fact that you work full time as a journalist and have for some time. And that's not an easy career industry to navigate. What led you onto that path? I think that, you know, in the last two months, we've seen, I think, something like 50,000 journalists lose their jobs because of the pandemic. And this has been a shrinking industry for the last 10 years, 20 years. Um, so I think journalism is a really great profession, if, and it can work out for you. But I think for people that want to become journalists, they need to realize it's hard. I think you need to treat it as if you're pursuing a career in art or acting or music. Yes, it can work out. Yes, you can make a living. Yeah, but it's difficult and it's extraordinarily, you know, unlikely you'll be able to do it long term. So for me, you know, I was in my 20s and I got laid off multiple times. Uh, NBC and Al Jazeera and then, you know, I've had contracts not renewed. So I, I, it wasn't until I got to the New York Times that I feel like I, I got kind of stabilized. Um, as far as how I entered the profession, when I went to college, I went to college at Boston University and I went to school for uh, broadcast journalism. Uh, I initially wanted to be a sports reporter, a sports broadcaster. I wanted to be like a, on, on camera, you know, eh, the guy hit a home run. And that was, um, I got really bored with sports. And so I started doing more documentary work. And then I started working in TV. And, you know, then I got laid off, got laid off again. And eventually kind of the big break was landing, covering the Trump campaign for CBS. And that was kind of the big career boost. And then the New York Times reached out about me covering culture for them. And so I've worked at a bunch of different newsrooms in a bunch of different roles. For most of my 20s, I was severely underpaid. It's not an easy industry. But when you do something that is important, there is a level of fulfillment there that I think is tough to reach in other industries, like a nine to five, like, I don't know, a, a corporate marketing job or something. There are people that you can help. But if you join journalism and you want to be a sports reporter, that's fine too. You know, it's uh, to each their own, but it is a very difficult profession right now. 
And I don't know if that will ever change. There's just too much turmoil that will go on in the world. Yeah. I think like any industry, it's definitely one that has its positives and negatives. But I do think that journalism in particular is going through a pretty unique evolution and struggling as it has been for many years as a result of the influx of these tech giants that are taking away ad spend and really hurting local journalism especially. I think in that realm, it's a reason that a lot of people struggle to pursue this path even when they're really excited and passionate about it because their parents and other figures in their life might be encouraging them to pursue a path that, you know, isn't necessarily just more lucrative, but might be more stable in terms of future prospects, given what's going on. With all that being said, what excites you most about being a journalist? Why did you fall in love with it? That's a great question. Um, I, I love telling stories and I love, you know, getting to know people and trying to present a different side of people. And I love interviewing people and trying to get them. I think it's a really interesting challenge to get someone to talk about something that they haven't talked about before. And there, there's a certain thrill that comes with you write a piece and a bunch of people read it and it's your name on it. There's a certain thrill that comes with that. I, I find it really rewarding when I can tell a story that nobody else has told. And then when there's breaking news going on, there, there is a certain rush that comes with that uh, of trying to be fast, trying to be correct, trying to make sure that you get it right. You're often in rooms that no one else is in. You are often seeing things that no one else is seeing. Uh, you're often going to places that you're not otherwise going to go. And when I covered the campaign, I went to something like 42 states with the Trump campaign. And would I go to 42 states if I wasn't covering the campaign? No, I, I probably wouldn't. There are also a lot of worrying things in the industry. There are a lot of things that you know can be frustrating, particularly diversity issues, particularly layoffs, and and as I mentioned before, the shrinking the the shrinking nature of the industry. So it's not roses here. You know what I mean? For for people that are interested in the profession, you know, you have to know there are significant risks that come with it. It's not like what you see on TV and in movies about journalism. It's not like the Steven Spielberg film, The Post. It's not this utopia, you know, for a profession. It can be a grind and it can be very unstable. Definitely. And it's obviously a tough job. I imagine one of the more harrowing experiences of your career was being arrested while covering the Trump campaign in 2016, I believe. How did you feel in that moment? How did it affect your outlook on your career? So it was March 11th, 2016, and we were covering a Trump rally in Chicago, and there were all these protests going on, and it was inside and outside, and Trump cancels the rally half hour beforehand. And I'm outside. I was working for CBS at the time, shooting the protests, and out of nowhere, a bunch of police throw me to the ground put a boot to my neck and arrest me and charge, and then charge me with resisting arrest. The whole thing was very bizarre. Um, I did not do anything wrong. I still to this day, I'm very baffled by what happened there because I have no idea. But I feel very confident in saying that if I was white, that would not have happened. That was very jarring, a very jarring experience. Um, I haven't watched the video many times. Um, Fox actually ran the video of me getting arrested on TV. And that actually ended up what saved me because it sh clearly showed I wasn't doing anything wrong. Clearly showed I wasn't resisting arrest. I didn't disobey police or whatever. And um, in terms of what effect I had my career, like it changed kind of, it changed my worldview. When that happened to me, 
it went very viral in that, you know, a journalist got arrested. And then the CBS News president released a statement. The stories being told all around the world literally made headlines in India. The CBS hires a lawyer for me, an expensive lawyer. And it still took 48 hours before they dropped the charges. Something like that. And the reason I bring that up is that those were the resources I had because I was a journalist. I should not have gotten arrested, not because I was a journalist, but because I wasn't doing anything wrong. Even if I wasn't a journalist, there was, I wasn't doing anything wrong. If I was just a dude hanging out there on the street, I didn't do anything wrong. If I wasn't a journalist, my story would not have gone viral. It probably wouldn't have been a story at all. There's no CBS News president issuing a statement on me. The White House got asked about me being arrested. I probably couldn't afford the lawyer that they hired for me. So what would have happened? What would have been my recourse to say, hey, this was messed up. You guys screwed up here. You can't, you know, I would have probably had to take a plea deal of some sort, you know, or I would have been in jail for days, weeks, months, you know, who knows? Um, and that's something I think about a lot is, is the amount of privilege I had as a journalist to be able to shield myself from what other people don't get to shield themselves from. I think that's a really important perspective. And I'm sure that your experience in this realm has impacted your perspective on the recent protests against police brutality and the racial injustices as related to George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. How have you felt and thought about that? Yeah. Uh, a, a colleague that I know, Omar Jimenez of CNN, you know, I woke up one morning soon after George Floyd and I'm watching him and he's someone I know and we've met and he's a great reporter and I'm watching him and he's getting arrested on live TV and I'm watching this and I'm having incredible PTSD about, oh, that, I, that happened to me. I remember this. There are some people that would call these protests kind, kind of a wake up call. But if you talk to a lot of people of color, particularly you know, those in the black community, they would say, why is this a wake-up call? This has been going on for a long time. You haven't listened to us. That's kind of, that's kind of where I am in that none of this is new. You know? And if you're noticing it for the first time, you need to think about why you're noticing it for the first time. Yeah, I actually saw this quote recently circling on social media saying, police brutality and racial injustice has been happening forever. The only difference now is that it's getting filmed. No, it's true. It's true. And, and it's, it's kind of unfortunate that, that it, it takes, you, like, you need to have a cell phone out at all times. Otherwise, you know, people won't believe you. It, you're right. It, it, that, that's, it's a very poignant point. And I, I just, I still come, I just keep coming back to, if, you, if this was a wake-up call, you have to ask yourself why it's a wake-up call for you. I think a really interesting trend in the current hour and recent years within media has been how much politics infiltrates every aspect of our lives. You know, whether we're talking about, of course, the protests against racial injustices, but also COVID-19 and the NBA, you name it. And I'm just curious, as someone who has covered campaigns, the NBA, culture, how has this manifested in your work and how have you seen this take place over the past couple of months and years? You know, I, I've seen different sides of it because I've covered culture and the NBA. I would say is one of the reasons I left politics, at least for now, at least covering day politics, is I was really burned out by the campaign. It was really exhausting. 
I felt like I needed to do something new and the culture beat came along and it's been really quite wonderful, you know, to see a lot of theater and film and TV and, and, and stuff that I wouldn't otherwise get to see. But something I, I really noticed is just how ubiquitous Donald Trump is in culture. Like I, I remember one of my favorite musicals I've seen in the last four or five years was the SpongeBob SquarePants musical, which I swear to God. <laughs> an it's a childhood musical. relic. Yeah, no, it's really good. And people are like, oh, why would you? I think there are a lot of people that didn't go to see it because they were like, yeah, this is you know SpongeBob. How can that be any good? And it was really good. And, and I remember there being like a bunch of Trump references in the SpongeBob SquarePants musical. And I'm like, it's a SpongeBob SquarePants musical. You can't escape Trump. And it's a good reminder of just how ubiquitous Donald Trump is in our society in a way that other pre- presidents have not been because there's just so much pop culture crossover with him. And so that's something that I think about quite a bit. There's just no escaping politics wherever you go. And, and maybe that's a good thing because I think if you, if you can say, if you can wake up in the morning and say, you know what, I don't want to think about politics. You know, I want to escape politics. That's, that's a privilege. That's a point of privilege for you. You know, that's, that you can say that, you know, I don't need to think about politics for today. That's a point of privilege. I think one of the big changes we've seen since 2016 is like just the ubiquitousness of Donald Trump being in, in society. He's everywhere. He, you know, he, he feuds with actors and actresses and, and athletes and sports leagues and, and, and Broadway musicals or whatever. He's just everywhere, if that makes sense, if that answers your question. Yeah, 100%. And I think to that point, we see this playing out with the NBA and their stance on China and the way that's all played out. I'd be curious also to hear your take on the recent suspension of Woj, the ESPN journalist, after his interaction with Senator Josh Hawley's office. I mean, there's this crazy intersection between politics and basketball uh, that's been happening and the general treatment and conversation around that. And as someone who covers this space as a journalist, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. I think that there are a couple of things that are telling here. A lot of Republicans really teed off on the NBA before the season started when the China thing happened uh, in terms of you know accusing the NBA of not standing more firmly behind Daryl Morey, the Houston Rockets GM who sent out a tweet that appeared to support the pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong. I will also note that those same Republicans have often been silent when it comes to the things that Donald Trump has said about China. For example, coming out and saying that he didn't want to punish China over human rights uh, violations because he was negotiating a trade deal. Republicans were mostly silent about that. And so instead they targeted a, a private business instead of like, wait till they find out about what the leader of their party had to say about this. So I find a lot of this a bit on the performative side because, for example, there's another example. Around the time the NBA thing happened, Bob Iger of Disney was doing an interview, and he said, oh, yeah, I mean, you know, if there's business at stake, I'm paraphrasing, if there's business at stake, no, we're not going to criticize China. And not one Republican said anything. You know? And I just think that there's a lot of bad faith here. Now, did the NBA handle the China thing correctly? I, I'm not going to say they handled that correctly, I'm, certainly. Here's the thing. It, it, when you brand yourself publicly as a league that is encourages activism, and then when it comes time for activism, you're only kind of being selective about it, you're going to open yourself up to criticism for that. And I think that's perfectly valid. But I do think if you that goes both ways, though. So if you're, gonna, if you're a Republican senator that's going to criticize the NBA over its handling of China, well, what are you going to do about the top Republicans handling of China? So anyway, so 
all I say, um, that that's kind of where I am on this. As far as far as um, Woj goes for ESPN, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not going to comment on, on on whether you know a suspension is appropriate or not. You know, that that's for other people to talk about. Totally fair. I think it's super interesting that you've covered these very unique beats and done all these unique things within your career. I'd love to hear a little bit about that evolution. I mean, you went from covering culture to covering basketball and then writing this book. Like, were you thinking about writing this book when you were working within culture? Like, how did all of that come about? Uh, no, the book came before I left culture uh, full time. Um, so I actually, I mean, if anything, the NBA opportunity came up and I was shocked. I, I never even thought in a million years I would, I would, that's what I would be doing. But every couple of years, I like to kind of take a hard left turn and, and, and do something completely different. And so I did politics for a couple of years, and then from there I did culture, and then now I'm doing the NBA, and who knows what's next. You know, I think I'm the kind of person who, you know, likes to keep moving, you know, uh, just this way things don't get stale. Uh, but no, the book process started in 2018. I took the NBA job in 2019. Well, uh, we definitely appreciate these left turns. It, it makes you all the more interesting to talk to and to pick your brain. I want to pivot a little bit. Obviously, this podcast is called Trailblazers, and we're talking about trailblazing within the South Asian community. Are there any South Asian creatives that have inspired you over the course of your life and career? Oh, yeah. There's, I mean, there are a lot. The one that comes to mind is Cal Penn, because when I was a senior in high school, he did a movie called The Namesake. Yep. I remember watching the namesake and I remember just, just being blown away. And I was like, Oh, I feel seen. This is a story. This is the, I, I, I feel seen for the first time. It's, it's cause it's a beautiful film, you know, and Jhumpa Lahiri is an incredible writer, um, but I feel seen. And then you read Jhumpa Lahiri's books and her short stories. And you're like, Oh my God, she's using terms like as a Bengali that I know I recognize. <laughs> and, and it's, so, it's so meaningful. And so there, there's that, you know, and there are other people, you know, Kumail Nanjiani's The Big Sick. Uh, I really love that film and seeing Kumail as a stand-up is great. You know, uh, Hasan Minhaj, what Mindy Kaling has accomplished, um, you know, Mira Nair, the director of, of The Moon Snake. You know, there, there's just, there, there aren't that many, you know, very well-known South Asian creatives, at least that have made it big in, in, the, in the West, so to speak. But, uh, you know, the ones I have, I really admire quite a bit. And they're the ones who inspired me to tell my own story because I'm seeing this out there. And, and I'm saying, oh, these guys can t- get their story told. Well, I can get my story told. So, that, that, so it, I, I owe a big part of this to, you know, the brown people, you know, that have done this before me. Now, am I, am I on, any, uh, on their level at all? No, not at all. I, that's, that's not what I'm saying. But I am saying is seeing their work inspired me to pursue this. I love hearing that because that is so much of the mission and vision behind South Asian Trailblazers is, you know, when you're listing these names of these people and this cultural phenomena that they've created and partaken in, I mean, that's a common dialogue that we're able to have because of these individuals and because we're having this conversation about them and because they're being showcased within the mainstream media. And that's why South Asian Trailblazers exists and is being created is to offer that platform and forum to show people 
hey, we can have this common dialogue, we can have this community. And more than that, you know, if there's something that you've been scared to try or aren't sure there's precedence in terms of your cultural community and your heritage, there are. Just take a look. So I appreciate you sharing your inspirations. Yeah, and I also think I also think that, you know, when people, particularly people of color, when they have a story to tell, you know, your 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 biggest obstacle isn't 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 the industry, which is a big obstacle given how white it is and you know all the barriers that it is. Your biggest obstacle is yourself and actually doing it and and convincing yourself that you can do it. And and so with the book, at first I was like, wait, can I write a book? Can I do it? And I was like, oh, I think I can. And then you do a proposal, then you get it, then you pitched it. But the first step, I mean, is like, oh, I can do this. I talk to a lot of people that want to write books and, and they're like, you know, I have this thing, I have this idea, but I don't know, like, it seems hard. Will, will anyone buy it? Well, I can tell you, no one's going to buy your idea if they don't know about it. If there's no idea that exists, if there's no execution that exists. So, you know, first you have to convince yourself that you can do it. Absolutely. And I think that's a great segue into my next question, which is what advice you have for people that look up to you and want to build a career that resembles yours in terms of the work you've done and all that you've been able to accomplish? Yeah, that's a good question. I have macro advice, which is what I just told you, which is if you have an idea, no one's going to make that idea happen other than you. That's the macro idea. The the micro idea is I, I I think the most the most important skill you can develop for yourself is networking because you know in the American ideal we we are taught that the world is a meritocracy and if you work hard enough and if you put in the hours you will get to where you want to get to because that's the American way and we now know that's not the case plenty of people get opportunities because they were in the right place at the right time and not because of their talent. Plenty of people have get opportunities because they were brought up in a, a suburb somewhere, had access to a great school, had access to a great college, and then had access to a great internship, and then were better prepared than someone who did not come from those things. So we know there's a lot more institutional stuff that goes on. What you can do to combat that is develop your skill, but also develop your networking as much as you can. So that when a job opening opens up, you know, the person, oh, I know this person. This person is a hard worker and, you know, let's give this opportunity to this person. Or in the course of, oh, we're looking for a writer or whatever. Hey, I know this person. Inevitably, if you're easy to get along with, that's half the battle. <laughs> Knowing someone is, you know, another part of the battle. And then being skilled is the other part of it. So I think that there's a lot of networking that can get you far, I guess is my point. The other thing is, there's a lot of stuff as you rise in whatever you do that is out of your control. Whether someone buys something of yours or not, or what is within your control is your own work. So if you are going to do whatever, don't get outworked. Be the hardest working person in the room. That is something you have control over. Everything else is out of your control. What you have control over is how hard you work. And that's something that you, you can bring to the table. That's really inspirational and I think important for people to hear, especially in the current hour when everyone continues to muddle through this pandemic and a thousand questions on their minds. So thank you for sharing that. Beyond advice, in reflecting on your career, you've clearly had such a wealth of experiences. You've traveled to 42 states for the campaign. You've written profiles on some of the most 
famous, noteworthy names out there. What, if any, has been your, wow, I made it moment? Oh, man, what was my I made it moment? Uh, I think my I made it moment was my second week at the Times when they sent me down to cover inauguration and they put my story on the front page of the Times in my second week. And the funny thing about that is like, I was like, wow, I got on the front page of the New York Times in my second week. This is going to be awesome. It's going to happen all the time. And it like didn't happen again for like eight months. I think in my four years at the Times, I think I've been on the front page like six times. But like it happened in my second week and I was like, oh, this is going to happen all the time. How cool is that? And that, that's not what happened at all. But getting my name on the front page of the Times on inauguration day was a moment for me that I thought was really cool. It sounds like very arrogant or whatever, but like, you know, like the New York Times, you know, it, ha- it, it has a cultural, you know, presence. And it was cool as a journalist, you know, who has, has spent my career looking up to the New York Times to be able to contribute to the Times in some way. That was cool. And I, that was a moment where I felt like I, I, I had made it. And is there any topic or beat or story that you've covered that's just continued to stick with you or really resonated with you? Yeah, I mean the Trump campaign. I mean, I mean that's unlike anything that I I, I will ever cover for the rest, that any political reporter will ever cover for the rest of. Oh world. wow! I mean, there's I can't think of a single candidacy that that is going to be as strange and as and as kind of shocking to cover. Like even if there's another shocking candidate in 2032, I don't know. We've had, this is the shocking candidate. Like there's a precedent for it. You know, but I got to see it up close, you know, the first time around. And so I, I think that um, that will stay with me on some level forever. That's incredibly interesting. While it's obviously been a tumultuous and polarizing couple of years, I think it's an important moment of history to have been a part of and to have seen so up close. And I think there are a lot of lessons to have been learned from that experience, I'm sure. And ones that we'll understand with far greater clarity as we approach this November. The last thing I want to ask you is you alluded to the fact that you're working on your next book. So with respect to that or anything else, I mean, what's your next left turn? What's next for you? I'm trying to do a novel right now. and I'm about like 40% through a rough draft. I started about a month ago. And that's pretty quick. So um, it's a story about a, a Bengali family uh, dealing with grief. So that's the next thing I'd like to do. Um, you know, we're also trying to uh, turn mistranslations, the book, on maybe getting that sold as a TV series, you know, trying to do that kind of stuff. But in the meantime, other than that, you know, I have no grand long-term plans. Because again, I keep thinking about that as a journalist. And that is a sense of privilege as well, to be able to think about long-term plans. Because of the pandemic. Who knows if I'll even be employed in a year? Yeah. Who knows if the Times doesn't have mass layoffs? Who knows? We don't know. I hope we don't. I don't think we will. But you just never know. And I try not to predict my life from one year to the next because things change. Things change so quickly. So, um, you know, I'm supposed to get married next April. Um, wow. Congratulations. Uh, I, who knows? If that's, thank you. Who knows if that's going to happen? Um, so right now I'm just trying to get through get through the day. You know, my hope is to have a rough draft of the novel finished by the end of the summer. And, and hopefully the world is in a better place in a couple of months.
Well, that's incredibly exciting. And I'm looking forward to staying tuned on all that you're up to. Thanks so much for joining me and having this conversation. I know that I'm really looking forward to wrapping up mistranslations and hope that all the listeners out there are on their way to pick up a copy. But regardless, it's amazing to hear not just about the creation of your book, but the evolution of your career and all that you're tackling and the decisions and inspiration behind that. So thanks so much again. And we're super excited to see all your continued trailblazing. Well, thank you for having me on the work that you're doing. I'm really excited to see um, everyone else you have on who are far more important than I am. And <laughs> no really, way. Really excited to see that. Thanks so much, Sopan. We'll talk soon. This is a podcast from Trailblazers Media. For more content on South Asian trailblazing, follow us at South Asian Trailblazers on Instagram and Facebook. 